Welcome to the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. This is Trevor. I'm here with Paul. Paul, how are you doing? Doing well. Having a good morning so far and ready to go. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Paul, happy short story month. Did you know before we started doing this that May was short story month? <laughs> you know, I did not, actually. There's so many months these days, sometimes you lose track. But <laughs> if I was going to pick one, this is going to be pretty high up on my list, so it's pretty cool. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know. I enjoyed National Poetry Month. Uh, it did get me looking at poetry. That's April. Uh, I, I was on Instagram posting pictures of poetry collections and therefore digging into them more than I usually do. And it wasn't until like a week into May when I realized, oh, people are talking about short story month too. Is that now? And it is. So here we are. We're here to celebrate. (laughs) I love it. I feel a little more comfortable here than I did, like I said before, with poetry. Like short stories are definitely (laughs) something I'm a little more uh, in, a little more in my comfort zone. Yeah, well, that's good. Me too. I I do like poetry, but it's Mm -hmm. not something that I feel very good at talking about or, or very knowledgeable about. Exactly. But short story, it's kind of, it's not like I feel like an expert, but I at least do a lot more with them and excited to talk with you about some short stories today. But before we do that, what have you been reading? Yeah, so I have been reading a book called Slash and Burn by Claudia Hernandez, and it's published by And Other Stories. Have you, have you heard about this one? I, I don't think I have heard about that one. Yeah, it's, it's really good. Yeah, so she's a Salvadoran author, um, and so the book is about you know this woman whose village is destroyed, and it, this happens when she's pretty young, and so this kind of prompts her to go and join her father up in the hills with this group of kind of rebels or guerrillas, um, and so from that point on, it kind of jumps back and forth between that time and the present day, and it's just kind of taking a look at the events that happen in her life, you know, kind of examining the kind of the far-reaching effects of war and how it impacts people, you know, decades later still. And so it kind of centers around a search for a lost daughter who was conceived during that time, you know, but it's Hmm. jumping ahead decades and it crosses continents and everything. So, you know, no less than our old buddy John Self has written some pretty (laughs) rave reviews about it. So, you know, there's lots of people who have um, been mentioning and it kind of got on my radar. So yeah, it's really well written, very captivating so far. And I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of finishing it up, hopefully maybe today or tomorrow. Well, I'm glad you brought it to my attention. I, because it's and other stories, mm-hmm. I follow their work. I follow John Self pretty religiously. Yep. Isn't it weird how sometimes you can do that and still someone brings up a title and you're like, oh, I don't know what that is. I, I probably I probably have heard about it, but it just didn't didn't register, didn't didn't stick. So thank you. <laughs> sure, absolutely. No, I'm constantly amazed by that. The fact that I spend you know probably way too much time kind of following all these conversations <laughs> and looking up books and and all these publishers and probably literally every day I come across some hidden masterpiece that I've never even heard of. And it's like, how does that happen? But it's a good problem to have. <laughs> well, that happened to me this week, you know, um, with the Gorman Gast books. Right. That w- you you brought up on Twitter and I looked at thinking, oh, what is this obscure? Uh, wait, it's not obscure at all. <laughs> Everybody's I know. heard about this. <laughs> it's crazy. I know. But like I said, I mean, it, it beats the alternative, right? It's, it's kind of exciting to always it have is. all these you know, hidden gems that are out there just waiting for you. So. It is. It's very heartening, actually, to realize you haven't you haven't heard of them all. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah. How about you? What have you been reading? So I have been reading uh, Rachel Eisendrath's Gallery of Clouds. Uh, ah. This is a, a, out from um, New York Review Books. It's not the NYRB Classics line, the New York Review Books line. It's a really lovely little volume. I'll kind of show you, even though listeners can't see. Just a little oh, hardback. Yeah. It's gorgeous. Really nice cover. Very small, you know, very po- not quite pocket size, but still just fits in, in your hand. And um, what what's going on here? Eisendrath is a classic or a, a Renaissance um, poetry, a Renaissance literature uh, scholar and, and professor. And she's writing about uh, Sir Philip Sidney's Arcadia. But from a, a very unique perspective, her little introduction or, or prologue or whatever it is, is about a dream she has or, or makes up or a vision or something mm-hmm. <laughs> of her in the afterlife showing her book to Virginia Woolf. I mean, that's kind of what we're on here. It's not, oh, wow. it's not like, here's Arcadia. Here's a little bit about this book. And it's like, it's a gallery of clouds, which she talks about as being um, uh, these things that kind of come and go in different colors and then 
you know, you shut your eyes for just a second and it changes in your mind. And um, anyway, I thought I'd read a part, though, that I thought was uh, kind of followed up on our conversation last time about our bucket list books. Mm. And it made me realize maybe some of the hesitation I've had in getting to some of those bucket list books. Because she's talking about Arcadia and she says, it's very important where you read such books and under what conditions and where you first find the volumes or even who hands them to you. C.S. Lewis said that the best way to read an Italian romance, of which Sir Philip Sidney's Arcadia is a first cousin on the family's English side, is for eight hours a day in a room by the sea while recovering from a minor illness. <laughs> that advice is exactly right because one can't place workaday demands on these books. Theirs is the realm of the long days, of wonder, of unfilled space and time, of wandering passages between an afternoon nap and waking, of attentive receptivity of the soft blue ocean on a map that induces fantasies about places you know next to nothing about, of sunlight shifting over a wall beside your bed. Jorge Luis Borges said, says that the meaning of some long books lies in their length, and these books are of that kind. These books have little plot, and that little plot has little shape. The books are episodic, following what Northrop Fry once called an and-then structure, or non-structure. These books are long, therefore not in order to complete any discernible trajectory or arc, nor to create an illusion of completeness, but rather to make you feel that the adventures could go on forever, that there is no intrinsic reason why these books should ever have to stop, and that, as Borges also says, even after these books have ended, at some more or less arbitrary spot, you will feel that they are still somewhere going on. Like the Arabian Nights, or In Search of Lost Time, these books do not fight off death. Rather, they forestall it. They do so by increasing the thickness of time, which maybe also means that they are sometimes a little boring, in a luxuriant way. Their air is thicker than air. It is golden and sun-drenched and heavy. I will get up and do what I am supposed to do, these books say, but not quite yet. <laughs> wow. And I, I love just that. Thought, I thought that was so fun and, and maybe made me realize why sometimes I do have this mythological time when I might be able mm -hmm. to read something like In Search of Lost Time at more peace, you know, when I can really sit down and have that, you know, reading session and then a nap and then read some more and then a walk and read some more. And that just doesn't happen. Right. Um, but maybe sometimes it is the ideal thing. But I'm still going to have to just push forward with like, you know, based on what we said last week, we got to we got to jump in sometime. <laughs> exactly. No, I love that. I mean, that one has been on my radar, but I, I think it was on my radar without truly knowing exactly what it was about, just partially because I trust NYRB so much. And I think I, you know, it just sounded wonderful. And then hearing your description of it, you know, I think I'm going to be ordering it like right after we're done talking here. <laughs> I love that boring in a luxuriant way that that's <laughs> <Yeah>. perfect. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's been really fun to read. It's very short, uh, you know, like 130 pages, but they're very short pages. Mm. Um, so, all right, but we are here to talk today about the short story. And I have thoughts on the short story. I have thoughts on its place in literature. Um, I, I cover a lot of short stories on my blog. I always have. Again, not enough to make me feel like I'm an expert in them. I don't, you know, study all of them and, and read every book about what the short story means or anything like that. For that, go to someone like Charles May, who you can find on his, his blog. Uh, but I, I really like short stories. Um and I kind of feel like they're often talked down to, you know, uh, authors write some short stories while in class and then, you know, all in work to, to write their novel, hopefully, you know, like these are, these are apprentice pieces or something like that. And I don't agree with that, but I, but before I, sh I say too much, I just didn't want you to step in it, Paul. I didn't want you to say like, ah, oh, short stories stink. You know, they're just, <laughs> I, I, I want a novel. <laughs> no, oh, I, I better change my notes. No. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think you would. But what, what, are, what are your thoughts on the short story in general? Um, maybe a little bit of your experience with them. We can just have a little conversation here before we get to a place where we're going to talk about some of our all-timers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, honestly, my kind of my relationship with short stories is probably just has evolved over time. I think there was a time, you know, years ago where I might have been in the camp of like, 
you know, it's kind of like a, a toss in, like you were saying, or something where if, if a favorite author was going to come out with a short story collection who usually wrote novels, I might be disappointed or, you know, mm-hmm. like waiting for the, the real work to start. But I think that I've really, that's changed a lot for me over the, the probably the past decade or two um, to the point where now I, I love them. I mean, I will search them out, you know, and, and kind of mix them into my other reading regularly, kind of like we talked about how I'd like to do with poetry. I mean, I do that already with short stories. And I think one of the things I like the most about them is I have come to appreciate kind of experimental stuff more and more as I've gotten older. And, and you know, not everything has to be tied up with a nice, neat bow. And I think that's one of the things that short stories are best at is kind of picking this little snippet of time or this one little event and kind of, you know, giving you a little look into that. But then it doesn't necessarily go any further than that. And that's okay. And then sometimes that's what's really powerful about it is you don't know what happens or, you know, you you have no idea what comes next. And so, yeah, I think that's one of the things that I actually enjoy the most about them is just, it's almost like this little lab experiment for authors where they can just try things. And as a reader, it's fun to kind of get, you know, some exposure to this little experiment. Yeah. And, and I, for the record, I'm totally fine with people preferring novels or not really liking the short story, you know, if it's their own personal taste, it's when there's kind of this blanket of, oh, those aren't worth the time or the the only real art out there is, is the novel, you know, these short right. stories are just, um, just little curiosities, but I, I just don't feel that way. And, you know, we have some support, we've got people like uh like Alice Monroe, you know, an mm-hmm. author that uh basically has always only written short stories. Even mm-hmm. her novel is a collection of short stories about <laughs> certain characters and it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um but she has done a lot to say, "Hey, these things um are special. There are things I can do here that I could not do in a novel." I think she's even acknowledged, "I can't write a novel." <laughs> you right. know, she thinks in these terms. Um but it's not because she can't come up with a rich or a deep story. Um, she's able to to do so much in a short story, uh, and that you know many authors can't do in a novel, even if they're they're with that space, you know, with that extra room to breathe. Right. Um, she, she can't take a false step in a in a short story, or it all kind of falls apart. And she's done that. You know, with someone like William Trevor, also mm. a great great writer of novels. I like a lot of his novels. Yeah, I do too. But but I prefer his short stories and he always wrote them, you know, he wrote mm-hmm. them throughout his whole career. They were not, they were not just uh, things to do when he was ramping up at the beginning of his career. And and I wonder sometimes how much some of our, you know, great American male authors, you know, of the 20th century, uh, the last part of the 20th century may have led to, to this, mm-hmm. you know, you had writers writing short stories, be, you know, for, for a long time, we've got Hemingway. He mm-hmm. was a short story writer as well as his novels. Um, but then you have someone like Philip Roth, who wrote his short story collection. And, you know, I think pretty much, uh, you know, even though it won the National Book Award, this is Goodbye Columbus, his, first, his, his debut and wins the National Book Award, kind of said, okay, now I'm ready for my real work, which is right. the novel. Yeah. And I think there are others who have kind of put it that way. And he may have been talking completely true for him. Mm-hmm. That was what he worked for. And his novels are, I don't, I, I can't see him writing a short story anymore. You know, his novels are so big and, um, and rich and, you know, mm-hmm. twisty and, and all of that, that I, I can see him needing to do that in a novel space or, or that being his preferred form. But I think that that maybe put them on uh, the, you know, second stage footing for, for some time. I'm right. speaking very vaguely and generally no, from the I mean, perspective I, of just a, an observer. <laughs> yeah, no, I think there's definitely some truth to that. And I was even going to say somebody like Stephen King. Um, mm-hmm. I know that when he started out his career as a struggling writer, you know, he was teaching or working in a laundromat or all these different things to make ends meet. And he would, you know, sit in there in his little like utility closet with a typewriter on his lap and pump out these short stories and send them off all, to all these weird like, you know, men's magazines and all these other things that probably were not like, you know, high end literary magazines at the time, but he kind of built a career around that. And and I will actually say that his short stories are probably one of the um, examples of something that started to change my mind, because as we all know, you know, I, I, I like a lot of his older stuff, but it, he was not necessarily known for his brevity um, in general <laughs> when it comes to the stand or it or something <laughs> like that. But 
when you see what he could do with his short stories where he would just get an idea and he would just, you know, try it. And it kind of reminded you of like, and I think even referenced like Twilight Zone episodes or something like that, Mm -hmm. where he would just, you know, this weird little idea where these toy soldiers came alive and started attacking somebody or, you know, whatever. And he would just try it. And it was maybe three pages, maybe 10 pages, and then he would move on. And I think as I read those, especially at kind of a formative age, I started to really see the value of just letting your imagination go on things like that. So yeah, he's, he's another one where like, you know, I don't know if that was something that he thought of as initially a, a lesser work, but he definitely has used it to his advantage. And I think it's added a lot of richness to his work. And it's continued to do so. He publishes mm-hmm. a short story periodically in like the New Yorker. Yeah, that's and, true. And they're quite different. You know, a lot of times my readers, cause we do the New Yorker kind of recap every week and people will be disappointed when it's a Stephen King story. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, they're, they're, they're pretty fun still. I know. <laughs> I mean, yes, this is not William Trevor, right? Um, but it's, it's Stephen King. What did you expect? And it's, it's its own thing and it's fun. And, and he does a good job in his short stories. They're usually just like with his novels, many of which I, 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 I just, in fact, I just read later um, uh, last month and mm-hmm. he, he just, I, I, he can't, finish novels for me i just no. I think he always has a misstep I do too. um <laughs> but i always can't stop reading them you know even exactly. when i see it coming because he's so good at his narrative and that's how mm-hmm. his short stories feel too you start him paragraph one and then you're you know I, i'm in <laughs> mm-hmm. exactly no that's right uh so so stephen king a little bit formative for you um i may throw out another one that i know i've heard you talk highly of um and that was a formative one for me. <clears throat> I mean, of course, in, in high school and, you know, in various classes, I would read short, the, the short stories you everybody reads, you know, right. The monkey's paw or yeah. some Hemingway. Oh shoot. What, what else might there be? But anyway, some, some of these classic Amer- American, usually short stories, mm-hmm. um, you know, Jack London, which I loved Jack London's short stories. Yeah, I did too. Uh, but even those, you know, I, I don't think I read them as uh, thinking about the short story as a continuing thing. People were still writing. It wasn't until uh, Jhumpa Lahiri's mm-hmm. a, um, a Temporary Matter is what really made me say, I got to look for these. Yeah. And it, it was because of a class I was in and it was a creative writing class. I'm not a creative writer, but I took the class anyway. And the teacher says, hey, there's this great new story collection um, I think it had won the Pulitzer by then. Right. Um, but he said, let me read you the first story. And it was a temporary matter. So he read it to the class. I was so invested and so engaged and so, you know, enraptured in that story that, again, it, it affected me. It still affects me. That was 20 oh, years too. ago. Uh, but it, um, it just, I just remember walking out of there and being a different person. And thinking how special that story was. And that's one of these formative short stories that really, really made me start looking. No, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't want to give a spoiler alert, but you might have just, uh, yeah, <laughs> you might have just previewed one of our later sections. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, her and that story in particular are probably my very top, you know, or or very near the top of my favorite. And, and like you said, I don't think it's overstating it to say that after I heard that, it, it completely changed my reading life. It changed the way I viewed the world in some ways. I mean, not just yeah. that story, but that collection. And I'll talk about that a little bit more, but no, absolutely. She is a master and she actually, I've heard her on the New Yorker podcast. I, I know that she um, thinks very highly of William Trevor as well. And I think there are some similarities um, in style and kind of the way that she does things. So it's, it's always fascinating to hear somebody like her who I admire so much talking about who they admire. And I know William Trevor is absolutely, you know, one of the people that she looks up to as a writer. So there's something about the short story's ability to really dig into an interior life. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are great novels that have done this too. Um, but the short story is just very close attention for a, a really brief, but intense period of time. Uh, yeah. That, that story, William Trevor's story, Alice Monroe's stories, I can't think of novels that have changed my life as much as these stories have. Yeah. I've heard people say, and I don't, I've, I don't know if I've come to a conclusion on this, but that there's no such thing as a perfect novel, but there is such thing as a perfect short story. (laughs) And I don't know if that's true, but I can absolutely see what they're talking about because it's like these little jewels where it's like perfectly polished. You know, it, it starts where it should, it ends where it should, 
you know, there's no flab, there's no extra. Um, and so, you know, I definitely, as somebody who likes sometimes the flab and the extra, I don't know that I would completely go that way, but I, I definitely see what they're saying. And I think there's definitely some truth to that. Paul, let's, let's go to our list. We, we, we made kind of a, a top three list, but I, I, I could not make this my all time. You know, this is my oh, for no. sure favorite short stories, but it, it's a pretty good list of, of where I come from and what I like and three of my favorites for sure. Uh, what do you have at your third spot, whether it's a yeah. top three list or just, you know, you just listed three stories. What do you got right. there first? Yeah, definitely not. Like you said, the definitive list by any means, because I could probably change it every time I looked at my list. But <laughs> uh, the first choice I have is a book and an author that, you know, certainly don't need any help from me when it comes to publicity. And that's uh, 10th of December by George Saunders. Um, you know, obviously this collection and, and he are, are super well known. Um, this is the one that prompted that famous New York Times headline. Mm-hmm. You know, George Saunders has written the best book you'll read this year. And they, <laughs> and they wrote that on January 3rd. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it's had plenty of hype. Uh, won tons of prizes. You know, he's probably as close to a literary superstar these days as, as you're really going to find. But mm-hmm. I, I would argue, and I'm not the only one, obviously, that there's a reason for that. You know, he's a tremendous writer. He seems like just a really genuinely good, nice person as well. Um, and what I like about him is, although people have criticized him for not necessarily branching out from his usual thing, I, especially in the last few years, I feel like he really has done that. And I would argue even within his short stories, like, you know, there are certain things that he does, but I think he's always done a great job of kind of mixing it up and trying new things. Um, you know, so there's comedy and sci-fi and dystopia, and sometimes there's downright silliness, but he also has a very dark edge. And so I was just going to, I came across this interview and I was going to real briefly read his thoughts on kind of the darkness yeah. that occurs. Um, yeah, so I came across this little excerpt from George Saunders just talking about his stories, and it kind of ties into what we were saying about the whole idea of them being like experiments, and it may even be where I got that idea, but he says, I think of my stories as little lab experiments that try to investigate these issues, just as a scientist would get the true measure of his materials by putting them under stress. My model of fiction is that we need to see human beings at or near their breaking points. So I think this can sometimes make the stories feel harsh, dark, or misanthropic. But it seems to me that if we want to look at, say, love, using fiction as the lens, then we'd want to really challenge love, give it something to push back against, construct a situation in which it could show its true colors, so to speak. And I thought that was just fascinating. And really, you know, like I do think I tend towards sometimes the dark or, you know, some of the what some people might think is like sad stories or sad fiction. And I think that is a perfect explanation of kind of what I get out of it and the value I get out of it is just that idea of seeing people under pressure and kind of putting some of this stuff to the test and seeing how they come out. I mean, it's fascinating. It helps me in my own life when you're going through stuff. I mean, I I think there's something very true to what he just said there. So, yeah. So anyway, you know, I really liked that. And there's tons of great stories in this collection. Um, I was tempted to reference his earlier work, Civil War Land and Bad Decline, which I also love. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like this one, you know, I th- that first one was just unlike anything people had seen before. And so it kind of blew people away. But I do think that this one has, sh- you know, shows a little bit of like how he's expanded from there and matured as a writer. And he does some really interesting things in there. Um, you know, there's some great stories. I don't know if you've read it, but the Semplica Girl Diaries, you know, that was in the New Yorker and got a ton of attention. Um, <laughs> and then there was the Escape from Spiderhead, which was another really like, I'm not necessarily a sci-fi person, but that was like a really interesting take a lot of it was very funny and then also super dark at the end um but yeah if you, if you don't mind i'm going to read one more um there's actually a story that i think might be one of the best in the whole collection and it's so short that i might just read the whole thing if that's okay with you trevor yeah 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 it's called sticks yeah Ever- in fact really really quick yeah yeah th- this was just um included in the penguin book of american of modern american uh short stories oh and yeah, yeah it's like a page in there yeah it and is it's, and it's, it's 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 exceptional so i i, I wondered if oh, this no. was the one when you said it was short Go ahead. yeah exactly and i think it does exactly what we were saying about how it's amazing what short stories can do with time and how mm-hmm. much can be packed into a short amount of space so yes. i think it's 392 words wow it's crazy because by the time you're done, as, as we'll see here in a minute, I mean, I, you feel like you have lived with these people for years. It's, it's amazing. So 
Every year, Thanksgiving night, we flocked out behind Dad as he dragged the Santa suit to the road and draped it over a kind of crucifix he'd built out of metal pole in the yard. Super Bowl week, the pole was dressed in a jersey and Rod's helmet, and Rod had to clear it with Dad if he wanted to take the helmet off. On 4th of July, the pole was Uncle Sam. On Veterans Day, a soldier. On Halloween, a ghost. The pole was Dad's one concession to glee. We were allowed a single Crayola from the box at a time. One Christmas Eve, he shrieked at Kimmy for wasting an apple slice. He hovered over us as we poured ketchup, saying, Good enough, good enough, good enough. Birthday parties consisted of cupcakes. No ice cream. The first time I brought a date over, she said, What's with your dad in that pole? And I sat there, blinking. We left home, married, had children of our own, found the seeds of meanness blooming also within us. Dad began dressing the pole with more complexity and less discernible logic. He draped some kind of fur over it on Groundhog Day and lugged out a floodlight to ensure a shadow. When an earthquake struck Chile, he laid the pole on its side and spray-painted a rift in the earth. Mom died, and he dressed the pole as death and hung from the crossbar photos of Mom as a baby. We'd stop by and find old talismans from his youth arranged around the base. Army medals, theater tickets, old sweatshirts, tubes of mom's makeup. One autumn, he painted the pole bright yellow. He covered it with cotton swabs that winter for warmth and provided offspring by hammering in six crossed sticks across the yard. He ran links of string between the pole and the sticks and taped to the strings letters of apology, admissions of error, pleas for understanding, all written in a frantic hand on index cards. He painted a sign saying, Love, and hung it from the pole, and another that said, Forgive? And then he died in the hall with the radio on, and we sold the house to a young couple who yanked out the pole and left it by the road on garbage day. So, whew, like, just reading that, I'm just <laughs> like, I mean, it gives me chills, like, kind of like I get a little emotional. And it's like, it's crazy because, like, the beginning of the first page, I have no idea about any of these people. By the time I'm done, I, I feel like I have this huge insight into their lives and the damage and just the complexity of their relationships. I mean, I, I don't know. That's got to be one of the most stunning short stories I think I've ever read. So anyway, I just wanted to to share that. Um, yeah. So since writing this collection, you know, he's branched out a bit and he's written his first novel, Lincoln and the Bardo, and then also a recent collection called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, where he looks at, you know, the Russian short story. So I know people have mixed feelings about him, um, some of which are probably a result of all the hype, but I really do think he's a master. You know, I, I rarely laugh or cry when I'm reading and he's literally caused me to do both. So I don't know, that has to count for something. (laughs) For sure. Um, Don't go look at my blog with the, like the Simplica Girl Diaries (laughs) because you are a hundred percent right. And I, and I'm hesitant to even say very much because you're right. And I don't want to undercut any of that. No, I, I have had a hard time with Saunders over maybe the last decade. And a lot of it, you, you kind of, you know, you, you approached me with, with what you said at the beginning, you know, is he doing something new? Mm-hmm. And sometimes when I read his stuff and the voice is kind of samey, you know, right. it's, it's Saunders, um, that causes me to, to maybe put up some resistance, but no short stories over the last decade have stuck with me as much as something like the Simplica Girl Diaries, mm-hmm. as something like Escape from, from Spiderhead. And I can't think of the name of it, but there's the one of that like winter um, with the, the young boy. Yeah, uh, I, uh, th- I was those, thinking about that one too. Those stories have stuck with me like none other. And I have to realize it's me who's approaching these uh, you know, wrongly. Because the other part too with that is I will search out everything that he is saying. You know, I love listening to him on YouTube or something because he is so compassionate. You know, his perspective of being a decent person I know. Um, is it's inspiring. And he's so articulate with it that I've had to realize it's me. Um, something about something about it just, uh, you know, needs something, something. I, I read all of them because right. I do I do get that thrill. Uh, but yeah, I, no, I, I appreciate mean, that you put it on it because. I've, I've been working through what is it about me that's making me resist something that is actually 
maybe more brilliant than anything else I'm reading. Even yeah. And I mean, I understand too, because I, I, I don't think that those, uh, not accusations, but when people say that he does a lot of the same stuff, I mean, it's, it's absolutely true in some of his collections, but for me, you know, he does branch out enough and also what he does, he just does it so well. Um, I think one of, I already liked him, but it really clicked for me when I have listened to him read some of his stories. And I don't know if you've ever mm-hmm. done that, but I have. He, I love it. Yeah. He and David Sedaris are two where after I heard them read their own work, I already appreciated them before that. But once I listened to them read their own work, something clicked and I was just like, okay, like I am all in now. So yeah. <laughs> all yeah right. how, well, how would... about you? Yeah. What's on your list? Uh, the first one I put on my list <clears throat> is uh, Sigismund Krzyzanowski. Uh He's a, a a writer from the 1920s, 1930s in Soviet uh, Russia. <clears throat> and the one that I selected is one called Quadraturin. I think it's the first one of his I ever read. And it remains one of my all-time favorites. NYRB Classics has published oh, five, five collections now, maybe, including one that's kind of a little bit of a novel, even though it's a novel of short stories <laughs> being mm-hmm. told by people in the novel. Um, Quadraturin is a story about uh, a, a man who is thrilled. He's got a he's got a room in in Moscow. He has a, a little space that's his own, but it's tiny. And this is literally the case. But they used you know the the authorities would go around and measure space to see if anybody had too much. And so you know he's got just the right amount. Um, it's packed. You know Russia and Moscow. He's he's pretty fortunate. But someone comes around with a with a salve or an agent that you can put on the walls, like an oil or, or something. And it will biggerize the room from the inside without showing it on the outside. And so he's, you know, well, I'll try this. This is kind of, kind of crazy. And sloppily, he puts it on his walls, not his floor and his ceiling. And what happens is just this existential nightmare mm. uh, that plays out in real space, you know, r- real space being this, you know, room that's growing um, around him. But I I love this story. I think the writing is fantastic. I think the word choice is fantastic. I think the the just the gulf of 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 what he gets into and what it says about his his psychology. You know, if you if you think okay, this room isn't growing. What what's actually going on here with this person, or or what's what's Krzyzewski saying about what this kind of uh, society is doing mm-hmm. and somehow still publishing it <laughs> in, yeah. uh, in Soviet Russia. It's, it's, it's a, an amazing short story. I, I, I don't know. Have you, have you had a chance to dig into any of Krzyzewski's work? Yet? I have, I have not. I, although again, like so many others, I'll probably keep repeating myself here, but he is definitely high on my radar. Um, I'm really familiar with this one and I don't know, did you do a podcast on this in the past? I, I did. Or was I, it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I did. As and, you were describing it, I was like, wait, I know one. this. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that must be where I knew. I couldn't remember if it was that or if somebody had read it on the New Yorker, you know, fiction podcast or what. But I think it was yours. And yeah, it just sounds fascinating. I definitely need to check it well, out. Well, in NYRB, they gave me permission to read that one as a separate episode of my podcast. And so so I don't think I even have that anymore, that recording. But um now that's but yeah, why that it's one of my favorites. It's yeah. one of my favorites, and that's why I, th- I said, "Can I read this?" And they said, "Yeah, go ahead." <laughs> yeah, hopefully yeah. it led a few people to him. Yeah, um, definitely got him on my radar. I just didn't remember it was you. <laughs> well, how's what's your number two? Yeah, or your second one? Yeah, so my second collection, and I was going to say actually, I instead of picking individual <laughs> short stories, I realized I I chose collections, which might have been cheating a little bit. Okay, <laughs> um, so the second one that I chose was Close Range Wyoming Stories by mm. Annie Prue, oh. which oh man, so you know it sounds like you're familiar. She is one of those other people who I would say you know I've enjoyed her novels, um, but her short stories to me are in a whole separate you know on a whole separate level. Um, you know this one is set in, you know, the often desolate landscapes of Wyoming. And basically it's just following the often, you know, really hard lives of the people who live there, you know, across the various stories, we, you know, see people who are working livestock or raising sheep, riding the rodeo circuit, um, you know, or working to kind of eke out lives on these really failing farms. Um, And she just does a wonderful job of capturing the West without glamorizing or mythologizing it at all. Um, obviously this collection is best known for the story Brokeback Mountain, which was adapted into that excellent Ang Lee film. Um, 
So it's been a while since I've read this one, but there's a lot of standouts. One that I remember specifically is actually has some things in common with stick or sticks that I just read. Um, it's called Job History. I don't know if you know this one, but it's same kind of thing where it's a little longer than sticks. It might be four or five pages, but it just covers a huge amount of ground in those few pages, you know, following the life of this main character, Leland Lee, and his different, you know, attempts to find employment. Um, you know, she manages to capture a huge part of his life um, and, and just his struggles. You, you gain so much empathy for him as he's just, you know, he's very determined, um, but, you know, his efforts are just futile time and time again. And he lives this life of just really, you know, some discontent. Um, so like I said earlier, I'm kind of find myself drawn to these, this literature, this kind of grammar, some people would call it depressing, but mm-hmm. kind of for what those same reasons that George Saunders was just talking on. And um, in this New York times review of, of this Annie Prue collection, I found somebody who, you know, said something that I think really nicely explains that too. Um, it says, why should you read these stories if their characters' lives are so mean and their fates so inevitable? You read them for their absolute authenticity, the sense they convey that you are beyond fact or fiction in a world that could not be any other way. And you read them for their language, not lyrical, but a wry poetry of loneliness and pain. And I thought that was just really put it perfectly for me. So yeah, I don't know. She's another one where anytime, you know, she has come over the years as she's come out with new short story collections, there's been several of these groups of Wyoming stories. I think this first collection is my favorite, but they're all really, really well done. I don't know. Are you familiar with them at all? I am. I re- I'm, they were, it's an honorable mention for me. Yeah. Uh, I didn't even know which one to select necessarily. I Cause I, you're right. I, I chose stories and that's, we're, we're good. That that's, that's the way these things go in, in a fortuitous way. I think, I think yeah. that's fun. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think her writing is fantastic. In fact, the, the latest novel bark skins mm. is almost too big for me as a novel, but I've, re- you know, the pieces can almost be read as long, short stories. Yeah. And I love each one of them. I, I think that's a fantastic novel. And, and the, again, a lot of it's because of the pieces. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Yeah, that's what, that seems to be what she's best at is, is those pieces. Yeah, how about you? What's your next one? <clears throat> well, Paul, I, I may... <clears throat> I kind of spoiled it earlier. And from what you said, I may have spoiled your, your number one. It's <laughs> oh, all right. No worries. Uh, but my... Well, so maybe we can kind of, uh, I'll just, I'll just say the word. And then if you want to take a, take it and share your thoughts, um, I, I did put a temporary matter by Jhumpa Lahiri mm-hmm. on, on my list. It, it's too important to me as a story, uh, that again, kind of opened my vision to the world and to relationships and to yeah. people in those relationships. And the, the collection I think is fantastic. Uh, it comes from, um, uh, what is the name of the collection? Interpreter of Maladies. Interpreter there of we Maladies. go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which, uh, which, like I say, from from what you said earlier, I think you've got more to say on it. So I'll I'll cede the floor. Oh, okay. I'll come back here in a yeah. minute. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that is my. I mean, I would argue I didn't necessarily rate these other ones in a specific order, but I would be hard pressed to find a short story collection that I that I love more than Interpreter of Maladies. Um, I would have to say it's probably one of the most important books in my life. Really, like you, it was actually assigned to me in a college class. Um, and it just has impacted my, my life in so many ways, my future reading, I think my understanding of immigration and family and relationships. Um, and also of course, just the power and beauty of literature, what it can actually do. Um, you know, I think Lahiri does such an amazing job of placing the reader in all these different perspectives, you know, first generation immigrants who are struggling to adapt Mm -hmm. to this new country and kind of balance the old and the new, but then she'll also like put you, you know, in the mind of the children of those immigrants who have often, you know, become better assimilated than their parents and and they're more, you know, American or British or whatever the case may be. They're more used to their new country, but then they're dealing with all these complicated feelings about their traditional parents and their backgrounds, you know, and and how to deal with all that. And then occasionally she'll pull you out of that completely and put you, you know, through, you'll see through the eyes of maybe an American who are, who's viewing these people. And so she is just so good at that perspective and, and building that empathy um, and she does it with such beautiful language and, and it's not overly flowery, but it's just very, um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think, again, it does have a lot in common with William Trevor, where it's amazing how much beauty she can pack in without packing it full of flowery language or anything like that. So, I mean, I, I have more, I can touch on some stories, but yeah. what do you think? 
Well, I, I think you're a hundred percent right about the, the beauty of her writing isn't in, you know, mellifluous words. It's, it's in her amazing ability to just directly uh, describe things and to really get at the heart of some beautiful insights, I guess is the way that I might put it. Yeah. Um, I think it is lovely. I think the same about like someone like Miley Malloy uh, yeah. in her, her collection, um, both ways is the only way I want it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, those stories are, you know, it's hard to find a sentence in there that on its own, you'd be like, now that is a, just a beautiful sentence for its word choice. Right. It's beautiful because of how it gets to the heart of the matter so fast. <clears throat> And that was a that was kind of an honorable mention for me would be yeah, Miley Malloy. Me too, actually. <laughs> <clears throat> um, but yeah, I guess maybe just talk just a little bit about a temporary matter since that was my mm-hmm. my choice's story. Even in that, um, it's it's a story about a couple who and for, told from the 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 man's perspective. You know they they they're not going through a good time in their relationship. It looks like it's going to end inevitably, but then. Maybe there's this reprieve there. I can't remember exactly what's going on, but somehow their, their power is getting turned off in the evenings. Mm-hmm. You know, we can almost look at it as something like the pandemic. You know, there's this disruption in the normal flow of life and they use that to reconnect, do some things together. And from his perspective, things are going so wonderfully. He's rediscovering his wife and falling in love with her again that's not what's going on with her. We we come to discover, and there's again the beauty and the uh, of that relationship from his perspective. How just life um, giving it is to him, as well as life taking away in a way, and mm-hmm. the other tragedies that they have suffered as a couple that they just can't recover from. Yeah. So there's it's not sappy, it's not sentimental, yeah. and yeah, just one of those things that just op- again opened up my eyes to hopefully being a more humane person, um, realizing the silent, the silent pain people go through. Yeah. Uh, So those are, that, that's one of the reasons I, beyond the experience that I had with that, um, it still remains just one of those stories that I I can't believe it gets from point A to point B so well. (laughs) I know. I just love it. I do too. Yeah. That's, the one that has always stuck with me out of that collection. There's one other one, Mrs. Sends. I don't know if you remember that mm-hmm. one, which is another one that just is beautiful and heartbreaking. And, you know, I, I won't touch on it too much, but it's just this young American child who begins staying with a uni- university professor's wife. She's watching him during the day. And so just by being around her, you know, he listens to her stories about Calcutta and he watches her chop up vegetables and prepare food, which is one of the details I think that Lahiri is just amazing at is all the the colors and smells and, you know, food preparation, and all these things, like the details and the richness of her descriptions just blow me away every time. But, you know, basically it's this young child watching this, this um, immigrant woman from, from India um, kind of struggle in this new life. She's trying to get her driver's license so she can go to the market and buy some of these foods and get, you know, a little bit of independence, but she's, she's terrified. She's in a new country and it's seen through his eyes, but it's just like one of those stories, like, again, what she does with perspectives and like you said, the pain that other people are going through and kind of the, the bravery of people doing what to us might seem like the most simple everyday things. But to, to her, this is like a huge deal. And, and just watching her kind of struggle with it, it's, it gets me every single time too. I remember the story-ish, um, mm-hmm. but it's been a long time since I read that one. So I'll have to go back and, and revisit it during yeah. our, our celebration this month. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> well, sure. thanks, Paul. Yeah. Oh, this is good stuff. Um, well, let me go on to mine that similar to yours, I probably could have rearranged. I mean, a, a temporary matter had to be on my list, I guess, but I, I could have maybe rearranged it a little bit. I, I could have thrown on, you know, Flannery O'Connor or something by Alice Monroe, certainly meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. I'll just maybe list my honorable mentions a little bit, you know, Stephen Milhauser, mm-hmm. um, uh, Tim O'Brien's stories, yeah. like, you know, just. I, how did I leave those off? Or even Bolaño's stories that seem to mean nothing but mean so much. Um, uh, George Saunders was someone I, I had considered. Uh, Miley Malloy, as I mentioned. Tessa Hadley. I love her stories. Mm. But uh, and any one of those could have maybe dislodged someone of, of my list. But the one story and the one writer I knew would be on my top, and you probably know too and seen it coming, is William Trevor. Yeah, This man's stories 
have meant so much to me as an individual learning and growing in, in my life. And I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he has these insights into these quiet souls, you know, how he can almost, you, you can imagine him sitting at a, uh, at a, a pub or a restaurant or something and looking over in the corner and seeing just two people talking, but seeing so much more than that and recognizing mm-hmm. them for their humanity and the, the quiet struggles. And, and my favorite of his stories, uh, one of my favorite pieces of art <laughs> in general, you know, throw it in the whole bucket with, you know, Hamlet and, you know, paintings and right. plays and music <clears throat> is the piano tuner's wives. And I had read it, you know, back, you know, maybe 20 years ago again, and really, really liked it. Um, And it stuck with me. And then I heard him read it a few times. And it just completely revolutionized the story for me again. And so if you don't mind, I'll just play a very little tiny part of this. It's him reading at the Y, at 92nd Street Y. I don't know what year it was. I mean, this is, oh, recorded May 12th. 1997, it does say. I I do know now. (laughs) Let's see if I got this in somewhat of the right place on the YouTube. The the second story is is called The Piano Tuner's Wives. Violet married the piano tuner when he was a young man. Belle married him when he was old. There was a little more to it than that, because in choosing Violet to be his wife, The piano tuner had rejected Belle, which was something everyone remembered when the second wedding was announced. Well, she got the ruins of him anyway, a farmer in the neighborhood remarked, speaking without vindictiveness, stating a fact as he saw it. Others saw it much the same way, though most of them would have put the matter differently. This woman haunted by the piano tuner's first wife and that relationship and they're they're having grown old grown old together here she gets him um at the you know at the beginning of the story they're getting married and it's what she's always wanted but it's a tragic relationship that the piano tuner doesn't even recognize because he's living his own life mm-hmm. it's what's going on within herself and this this just amazing story about uh, about this situation. I don't know of any other books or stories that have really dealt with this uh, this type of relationship issue uh, either, but especially not this well. Uh, but yeah, just that humanity again, mm-hmm. this recognition of someone who's going about their life. You know, you'd see them; they might look a little bit downtrodden because that's what life does to us. But to really get at the heart of it, as as Trevor does in in this one, is just a just amazing. I, I, I read and listen to this story quite often. Um, I'll go out and build a fire, in our, you know, in our fire pit out back and, and put it on yeah. and listen to it. It, it. It's just a special thing that kind of re recenters me um, in, in my own life. But I, I love, I love his technique. I love that even in the way he writes this thing, that that previous relationship haunts the prose, it, it, that, that the wedding that he describes here in a minute you see two weddings going on at the same time. Somehow it keeps it straight and you can see the effect of one on the other um, o- over the years. And, and it's, it's not, so it's not just his insights, it's his ability to convey them in a, in a really complicated, but for a reader, easy to understand uh, way. It's just uh, remarkable. And yeah. I, I love I love so much of his work. I you know one of those writers that when he died and it had been it had been a while since I'd gotten anything new from him. But when he died, I thought, oh, that's it, you know. Yeah. But but then we did get that collection of last stories, several of which had already been published. Uh, but that was just kind of this little last bit of treasure mm-hmm. uh, of these great great stories. Um, yeah. So anyway there there's my number one well, I'll yeah. talk about it whenever <laughs> no that makes me i I've read some of his novels and I've read some of his short stories but he is one that is kind of honestly one that I've it's kind of a gap for me where I feel like there's so much I have yet to discover and I have that big yellow hardback of I don't mm-hmm. know if it's the collected stories I can't remember the but a big huge collection of his stories and you're you've inspired me to kind of go grab that off the shelf and take it down and read it this month because yeah that's just amazing stuff. 
yeah, poke around a little bit. Uh, you know, there he's he wrote so many uh, short stories throughout his career. There's just mm-hmm. a, a bunch. I mean, he was faithful to the to the form <laughs> while yeah. also writing novels and and other and and acclaimed novels. You know, novels that would go on to be finalists for say the Booker Prize and that I really do love. But mm-hmm. again, it's his short stories that really shine for me. Yeah. Well. Well, I kind of listed my honorable mentions. Uh, yeah. Do you? Do you? Or at least the authors that I was considering for them. Do you have any that you I, had a hard time? Uh, yeah, <laughs> leaving plenty. Off? Yeah, and not surprisingly, we have a little bit of overlap here and there. But yeah, here's a few that just popped to mind for me. So, uh, North American Lake Monsters by Nathan Ballingrude. Um, mm, I don't I know if know you know one. those. Bill Ryan on Twitter, I think, was the person hmm. who kind of introduced me to that and. They actually, there was like a Hulu show that they made out of it, which was okay. Um, but yeah, they are just very weird, um, but, <laughs> but really well done. And I think weird, even kind of in the, that other use of the word weird, you know, where it's kind of like these everyday life, but then something drops in with little explanation that just doesn't belong. Uh-huh. Um, so like yeah, that. that one's really good. Um, a Manual for Cleaning Women by Lucia mm. Berlin, yeah. or Lucia Berlin, I think. It, uh, Jesus is Son by Dennis Johnson. Um, I had a hard time picking on Miley Malloy. I loved, um, both ways is the only way I want it. And half in love, I think is another great collection. So either one of those could probably easily rank pretty high. Um, a couple more last night by James Salter. Um, I love several of his short novels, but yeah, his short stories, he, he's a, an amazing writer as well. Um, in the garden of North American martyrs by Tobias Wolf, Florida by Lauren Groff, um, mm that one really surprised me. I mean, I I've liked her novels and I can tell she's a great writer. Um, but I wouldn't say any of her novels have necessarily blown me away so far, but that collection, especially a few of the stories really, really got my attention. I mean, I was stunned. I I actually did want to, to bring her up and had forgotten. So thanks. Mm. I, I, I find her as a great, um, short story writer that's currently working you know, her story earlier this year in the New Yorker. I don't know if you had a chance to see it. I saw it, but um, I didn't get a chance to read it yet. I think it's called The Wind. I think that's what it's called. Is very good. Yeah. I recommend it. And then she just published a novella on the New Yorker website that I have not read yet. And 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 I know it's got someone's name in it. I can't remember, but uh, I don't have the title right in front of me. But yes, she is someone that uh, I think is still doing great things with, mm-hmm. well, there, there are many, I mean, there, the short story is not dead. There are many great practitioners and people who are writing them, but, but she's one that stands out to me as a, like, Oh, I, I'm glad I, I look forward to anything she puts out. Yeah, exactly. And then <clears> just <throat> one last one that I had that just, I feel like he's kind of keeping like that really strong Southern U S um, tradition of short stories going is Ron Rash. I don't know if you've read anything by him, but Mm -hmm. something rich and strange was his most recent. I think it was his most recent. It was the most recent one I read. And that one had a lot in common with some of the other um, Southern short story writers while still doing very original new things. So yeah, I would Mm -hmm. highly recommend that one as well. So yeah, I could keep going forever, but those are a few that came to mind. (laughs) Do you, do you, have you read Thomas McQueen? I, I can have. see you liking those as well. He just had another story in the New Yorker that I thought was fantastic. Yeah, I have. I um, was it Crow? What was the one with Crow in the title? I read that one. I actually got to uh, see him. He was no. at our library doing a book reading, oh. and so I got to briefly meet him, and he was really nice. And yeah, he's another one I would absolutely say. Yeah, we're going to be kicking ourselves when we, you know, leave and realize all the ones that we left off that, of course, should have been brought up. You know, right? So. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to do a part two somewhere down the road. Sometime we 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 can for sure. There's this is a rich field. There's no way to cover even our our favorite three. No, let alone all the ones that um would be in you know in in any decent conversation about the short story exactly (laughs) so we can't pretend to have done that here just a little bit of enthusiasm hopefully get some people um out reading them as well as remind ourselves uh, what we love about them and just appreciate this the this form and all that it can do in so many different ways i do recommend that new penguin uh volume by the way i was surprised by it because it's it shows how diverse publishing has been over the last half century Mm. There's um, a lot of different voices, a lot of different kinds of stories, um, a lot of different sizes of stories, and it 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 was fun to go through and, and realize. Wow, we've I don't think a collection from the first half of the cent of the you know of the twentieth century 
could have, you know, based on publishing, right, done anything like that. Yeah. So I know we've still got a long ways to go, but it, it was pretty in, in, interesting. Yeah. But all right. Well, I think we're good with our conversation on the short story, though I, I could go on. Um, but we did want to end with some recommendation, something that you know maybe piqued our interest over the last uh, couple of weeks. And uh, what what do you have for us yeah. today? Absolutely. I thought since since I cheated last time and didn't do a book, I thought I better do a book this time. No, I, <laughs> no this book, I just finished it. Um, this is another one that I'm seeing a lot online right now. Um, it's called Twilight Zone by Nona Fernandez. I think it's Nona, um, N-O-N-A. And that's by Grey Wolf Press. Um, so Fernandez is a Chilean author. Uh, this book is about the Pinochet dictatorship and kind mm-hmm. of its long lasting you know, impacts on that country and the people in that country, you know, decades down the road. So it's basically narrated by a modern day documentarian who becomes obsessed with this person that she refers to as the man who tortured people. And he's a member of the Chilean secret police who, you know, one day back in the 80s, this is kind of how the book starts. He just walks into this newspaper office or a magazine office, I think it is, and just basically gives a front page worthy confession of everything that he's done as a torturer and a secret police officer for that dictatorship. So that's kind of how it starts off. And from there, the book jumps around in time between the narrator's present as she's trying to uncover these different things for the documentary. And then going back to the man who tortured people's actions under the regime and kind of the repercussions of that on the people who were disappeared sometimes or on their families. So, you know, it's obviously pretty pretty rough at times given the subject matter, but Fernandez is a really excellent writer and she handles this really deftly. You know, she mixes in some pop references, Twilight Zone, which is in the title. She brings in some of those old episodes um, and other things to create a really compelling story. So yeah, this is one that I would really highly recommend. It's, it's really good. All right. Well, and again, not one that I, that I know anything about. Well, I did the opposite. I decided to not do a book this time. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> so we're working out. Um, I just watched Anthony Mann's 1950 Western, The Furies, starring Barbara Stanwyck and uh, and Walter Houston. And I was very surprised by that because it's not something that I'd heard a ton of people talk about. I'd never seen it before. It's a Criterion Collection release and had been on DVD since 2008, but it just got a release on Blu-ray and that's how I watched it. I kind of went into it thinking, okay, you know, Anthony Mann in 1950 came out with Winchester 73 starring James Stewart. So how good can this The Furies be? (laughs) Well, it's really good. I really enjoyed it and was, again, really surprised uh, by where it went. This is a dark film, dark in like a a Greek uh, tragedy sense, like ancient Mm -hmm. Greece family. And and it plays on that. I mean, deliberately, the title is The Furies. I mean, it's... It's, it's, it's an explicit thing. I didn't, didn't connect it until I'm halfway through it and thinking, oh, what is going on in this family, you know, and, and this <laughs> revenge and this, these just awful people and, um, but played out on the Western landscape. I, I was really happy with it and would recommend people check that one out as well. Um, that's the Furies, Anthony Mann in 1950. Yeah, I looked for that. I heard you mention it and I looked for it on the, because um, I have the Criterion channel, the streaming, and unfortunately I don't see it on there, but I might have to track it down otherwise because it sounds really good. It is It is a good one. I mean, there's plenty of plenty of great stuff on the Criterion channel. So, oh, absolutely. You know, that, it's we can been a life saver. recommendation on that. Mm-hmm, for sure. <laughs> if you don't, but all right. Well, Paul, very nice to chat with you about short stories and other things today. Absolutely. Um, we're not going to figure out how to do this in a, in a half hour, 45 minutes, are we? doesn't it seem like, like it. it looks We're like pushing an hour, an hour every time. <laughs> that's okay though. It's, it's, it was very enjoyable. That's why it, that's why for me it, it's going on. I, I, Absolutely. I'm enjoying it. Me too. Absolutely. It's been great. Um, hopefully, you know, we get to know some more people out there. You're welcome to reach out to us. We'd love to connect and hear some of your favorite short story collections or your bucket list books or whatever we end up talking about next time. But for now, we will, we will let you all go. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can find Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. 
If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month, helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash mooks. Until next time.